Um, as you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to share with you, I want to say thank you, and I want to share with you a story of why I want to say thank you. Um, uh, my family and I got to go worship with our in-laws, um, Bill and Denny, as many of you know, at their church on Christmas Eve and on Sunday following. And on the Christmas Eve service, uh, if you know, usually um, Addie will, will sing with Daddy as as as. Daddy is holding her, so my, my four-year-old will often come into my arms and we'll sing worship together. And uh, we were there, and as they started singing on Christmas Eve at my in-law's church, um, I look down to Addie and I hold my arms out to her like this, and she holds her hands up, but then she starts sobbing uncontrollably, like just crying her eyes out, weeping. And I'm like, child, what is the matter with you? What are, baby, are you okay? Did, are you hurt? What, what's the problem? And she's just uh, digging her face into my chest and just weeping. And then I said, baby, please tell me, what is the matter? And she looks up to me and she says, I miss my church family. <laughs> uh, and daddy lost it a little bit there, but I was so thankful because, you know, um, that is what this is to her. And that's because of you guys. Because the Lord's work in bringing us together, certainly, but I'm so thankful that we are a family and that my four-year-old daughter recognizes that. Of course, we had to have a conversation about the universal church right after that, right? Um, but my four-year-old daughter recognized, and I hope if you're a guest here, I hope you feel that spirit within this church. I hope you feel uh, welcomed here and part of the family. Uh, and so I was so thankful for that, uh, and it was a blessing. First Thessalonians 4, I want to give a disclaimer uh, before we dive in. If you go ahead and look at their, your bulletin or the title of this passage, there may be a little bit of concern, especially knowing we've got eight-year-olds and above in here too. Um, but I wanted to tell you two things. One, um, I think that this topic and this text needs to be discussed within the confines of the church um, because the text discusses it. Uh, and so, uh, however, I, I'm not the parent of your child, and so if at any point in time during this sermon you just feel maybe this is just a little bit too heavy, I'm trying my best here to, to not uh, go into any details or anything like that, but um, at any point in time you feel like maybe this is just maybe too much for where my uh, child is at this point in time, um, then th that's okay. Uh, we will not judge any parent for determining that. Uh, at any, any point in time here today, we will encourage you and love you and see how we can minister to you um, after that. So that being said, I know that's a wonderful way to start a sermon, right? Uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. I know our text says verses 3 through 8, and we're going to cover verses 3 through 8. But the reasons we're going to read 1 through 8 is first, because this section kind of really goes together. Uh, and second, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Thessalonians, hasn't it? Uh, I think since the last week in October, and so we can read that for a little bit of context uh, as well here this morning. So if you found your place in the Word of God, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, again, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 8 this morning. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you know our need. Um, Father, and I'm confident that this morning you are going to meet our need with your word. Father, you know better than I do um, the struggles that many present in this room wrestle with. Father, I know some of them, but we also know every heart is laid bare before you. We are all naked and exposed. There is not a thought that we think, a word we speak, or a deed we do that is not done fully in your sight. So, Father, I pray that the word would do what it was intended to do for the Thessalonians. Lord, I believe that this word was meant to strike a blow at, to the desires of the flesh that wage war against our spirit who is at work within us. So, Father, would you open our eyes and ears laying aside any ability we might think we have to overcome these things by our own strength, but instead that you would compel us to depend more and more on your son Jesus and the work you've already accomplished through him. Would you help us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you. You may be seated. Okay. In 1992, I know this is an old statistic, uh, in 1992, Christianity Today surveyed a thousand of their readers, and they found that 40% of their readers had engaged in premarital sex, 14% of their readers had an extramarital affair. Of that 14%, 75% of the 14% who had cheated on their spouse were professing Christians at the time of their affair. Now that was 1992. And as you look at the cultural landscape and even the evangelical landscape in our day, would you wager that that statistic has gotten better or worse over that period of time? See, I actually looked for some more recent statistics. I did. Um, and I found some, but none that were all that trustworthy. In fact, the main thing that I found was really a disquieting silence on the issue in general, almost after, as if after the 90s, we kind of just gave up counting. And the fact of the matter is, the sad reality is, if you want a statistic on sexual relations within the confines of, of the members of the, Lord, uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want a statistic on that, just look at the culture. The cultural statistics will tell you because they're no different. There's no difference in the statistics between the outside world and those who profess to be Christians. And so, I won't give you any more statistics. Instead, I'll give you a story. Uh, this is from a Facebook post about four years ago uh, today um, from uh, Derek Webb, who um, is a professing Christian artist, uh, used to be in Cademan's Call, and is now, I believe, in a band called Indelible Grace. Uh, he put out this Facebook post, I think uh, not four years ago, five years ago, in January 2016 on New Year's. Here's what it says. I've thought for a long time about how 
when and honestly if I would write this. But with some time and healing behind me and the start of a new year, I felt that it was time. As I'm sure you know by now, my wife and I divorced a little over a year ago. At the time, we put a lot of thought in what, to, in what we considered to be an appropriately benign and simple statement, which we released together announcing this sad news. A very good and wise friend, someone who has also gone through some hard things publicly, gave what I considered valuable counsel. While your instinct and people's expectation might be to go into a lot of detail in what you share publicly about a situation like this, it's very rarely a good idea. But with some perspective and much personal health and growth over the past year, it now feels incongruent to leave the subject unaddressed publicly. I can imagine that many of you felt and maybe still feel confused, disappointed, angry even at hearing the news of our split. There was an understanding, a trust broken between you and me. I've heard it said that trust takes years to build and seconds to break. My hope is that this writing might be the first step toward rebuilding that trust. In the brief statement that was released about our divorce, it said that I took full responsibility for the events that led to the decision. That is true, but I want to take this opportunity to say more. The truth is, I cheated. I betrayed the trust of my wife. I betrayed the trust of my family, my friends, and my community. And I betrayed the trust and support that many of you have entrusted with me for many, many years. What started as a brief and appropriate and quickly confessed connection with a very old friend evolved quickly into something more serious which was hidden from spouses and friends. It continued in secret for a matter of months, was eventually discovered, and set into motion the consequences that I will now live with for the rest of my life. If only this was a rare story, right? If only this was an anomaly, a phenomenon seldom heard or known uh, within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, in our day and age and in our culture, this story could be multiplied leads us to the main idea of our text this morning. The main idea of our text this morning is that our sexual desires and conduct are to be holy. That is the main idea of what Paul is getting at here. Our sexual desires and conduct are to be holy. And what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack this, uh, helping you kind of see the way that Paul makes his point. And so I want to begin by orientating us to how Paul gives his argument, how he encourages and exhorts the Thessalonians that they must obtain, abstain from sexual immorality and know how to control their own bodies, avoiding harming one another in this matter. And so I want to start by doing that. And, and if you have your Bibles, it would be extremely helpful to have them actually open so you can look with me at this text as we go through this. This is very clearly laid out in this text. You're going to see it. I just know you will. Uh, verse 3, of course, begins with, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you remember way back in October, um, I know it was 2020, so it seemed like eight months ago, but it wasn't. Uh, if, if you remember, we uncovered this, unpacked this idea uh, last time we met. For this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Ultimately, in a broad sense, what God's will is for your life is your holiness. But what Paul's going to do in verses 3 through 8 is he's going to kind of unpack this in a narrower context, uh, dealing specifically with what the Thessalonians were dealing with, and in this case, it is uh, sexual morality. And the way he's going to do that is Paul's going to give them three clauses here in the text that are going to serve as three exhortations, and you're going to see them very clearly. 
Uh, and then he's going to follow the, those three clauses or exhortations with three reasons for obeying or abiding by those exhortations. And so, three exhortations followed by three reasons. That's your outline this morning. We'll unpack the exhortations first. The first exhortation, if I can paraphrase it, because it's so clearly seen in the scriptures, is that you would be separate from sexual morality. Separate yourselves from sexual morality. That would be the first exhortation. Separate yourselves from sexual immorality. Look what it says there very clearly with me at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now that word abstain that's used here in the New King James Version, it actually literally translated with the idea of to avoid contact with, to avoid use of something, to keep away from or uh, refrain. Uh, what Paul's really doing here is he's kind of using a play on words in verse 3. You could technically paraphrase verse 3 this way. Uh, for this is God's will for you, your separateness, that you separate yourselves from sexual morality. In other words, God's people are to be set apart, and one of the primary areas they are to be set apart is in the area of sexual morality. Now, this term sexual morality is going to refer to anything outside the context of a heterosexual marriage. So premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, engagement with trafficking in any sorts, anything and everything that takes, outside, uh, takes place outside the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Um, this is what Paul's speaking of here. On behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is commanding his people in this way. Now, it might be helpful for us to put this in context. Uh, Paul is not writing to a bunch of people who grew up in the church. He's not even writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. He's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. Thessalonica was a religiously plural, diverse environment. The people of Thessalonica served no less than 20 deities. In fact, in reality, they probably served more than that, but no less than at least 20 different deities. One commentator, Gene L. Green, wrote this. He said, Far from prohibiting sexual morality, the cults of Dionysus, Aphrodite, Osiris, and Isis, uh, Cabarrus, and Priapus actually promoted sexual license. So they didn't prohibit sexual morality, they promoted it. And so just imagine the challenge of this group of Gentiles who had been worshipers of all these different deities participating in all of their worship services, including things like temple prostitution, and now they're brought into this new community and this new God whom they're introduced to, and he is prohibiting all sexual activity outside of marriage. Then you add the idea, that the challenge, that this was not just about the religions of the day. This was the societal norm of the day. They all promoted sexual license. Prostitution was legal and acceptable. Intercourse with female slaves, legal and acceptable. Extramarital relations was legal and acceptable, at least for men. In fact, one ancient writer wrote this about Thessalonica. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our bodies, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. That was the attitude that prevailed in the day. And here's the reason I need to tell you this is because I feel like there's a tendency for us to feel like to, to ask Christians in our culture to abstain from sexual immorality is it, we're just setting our expectations too high. I mean, we, we can't really expect that. Could you imagine how hard that is? in our culture to do, it's absolutely ludicrous. Don't, don't ask people to do that, it's just too hard. But the reality is that Paul is giving this command 
amidst a culture that was at least as bad as ours, but in far reality, it was probably far worse. It, it really was. As perverse as our society has become, it is still tame in so many ways compared to the context in which Paul is giving this exhortation. Even so, in our passage, Paul wrote that the Thessalonians were to separate and distinguish themselves from all sexual immorality. In other words, their sexual conduct was to serve as a boundary marker that distinguished them from the pagan community. And church family, the application for this is really not hard. It's not. Our culture may still have enough residue of its former Christian influence to prohibit some of the things we were allowed in the Greco-Roman culture, but not much. And I won't bother you with the list of sexual sins that our society approves of or even promotes, but let me just say this. It's a long list, and it's getting longer every day. And in the midst of that, Paul tells us that we are to be a community that stands apart from the culture. We are to be distinguishable by that in which we refuse to partake in with regards to sexuality. That is to be the primary way that the culture is able to identify us as a body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not deeply disturbing that the reality is that's not the case? That the statistics are virtually equal? I heard Paul's words this week, not in an audible voice. We're not uh, charismatics, although maybe some of us are. Uh, but ringing in my head this week, I heard his phrase in Romans 6. May it never be. May it never be. And you know, the temptation is for us to maybe think, well, yeah, that's a, that's a shame, Pastor Cody. I mean, the rest of the church, they really are messed up and need to improve. But the reality is, do we not have the same struggles right here in our midst? We do. Paul exhorts us, separate yourselves from sexual immorality. I remember counseling with a mother years ago as a, as a youth pastor whose high school son was engaging with his girlfriend in this way. And she explained the situation. She kind of just gave me a shrug. Yeah, what are you, you going to do? They're teenagers. She explained how the other parents put his girlfriend on the pill. May it never be. Listen, we are to separate ourselves from sexual immorality. It's the command of scripture. Again, that is sexual relationships of any type. Anything outside of the context of marriage between one woman and one man. A long-term covenant commitment with God between a husband and wife. Anything outside of that is forbidden by the Lord. God's will is that we would be holy and that we would separate ourselves from sexual immorality. Here's the second exhortation that Paul gives. Learn to control your sexual desires and conduct. Paul tells them, not only do we need to separate ourselves from sexual morality, we must learn to control our sexual desires and conduct. Verses four and five of our text say this, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not 
know God. See, there's an implied contrast here, right? Not like those who don't know God, but like those who do know God. And the echo to Leviticus 18 here is unmistakable. And if you remember way back in October, we read the beginning of Leviticus 18 for our scripture reading. Um, And it's known as the holiness code. I wanna read just the first five verses uh, with you this morning. They'll be on the screen, so you don't necessarily have to turn there, but I want you to get your eyes on it with me. Uh, Moses writes this in Leviticus chapter 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. According to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Did you hear the repetition of I am the Lord in those verses? Three times in five verses. See, the instruction here is grounded in knowing God. Israel was not to walk in the way of the pagan nations. They were to walk in the ways of the Lord because they knew God. Because of this relationship of God now having revealing himself to them, they were to conduct themselves in a way that honored and pleased him. So also in our verse, the nations are driven by a passion of lust because they do not know God. They don't know God in his self-revelation as a merciful and loving God. Listen, Paul's not referring to the way that all people know God, but suppress that truth and unrighteousness, according to Romans 1. He's referring to the way the Thessalonian believers know God, because God had transferred them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, that they had turned from serving idols to serving the living and true God. They know God, so they can no longer be driven by the passion of lust like those who don't know God. Therefore, they must learn to control their bodies in holiness and honor. Don't miss this, by the way. What he's really saying here is faith and ethics are inseparable. Faith and ethics, they are. They're inseparable. This is not some moral absolute that we're simply just given and must obey or else. This is our obedience. Our obedience is directly related to our relationship with God. Inseparable from it. Why do we obey? Because we know him. Because he has condescended and revealed himself to us. Because he has lovingly rescued us. He has mercifully redeemed us. That is why we obey. And we need to hear Paul's exhortation to us here. We cannot let our bodies control us like our society who does not know God. But we must learn to control our bodies in sanctification and honor as those who know God in Christ. And I want you to know something here. That that word know in our text, the way it's used, I'm not going to get into the Greek, uh, but really it's describing a process. It's progressive, in other words. It would be appropriate to say learning. We are learning how to control our bodies in sanctification and in honor. Listen, I, I know your struggles, and maybe not all of them, but enough and and I and you know mine listen I share in many of your same struggles but the devil would have you and I believe that we're fighting a losing battle and I'm here to tell you that is simply not the case that is his point we are learning to control our bodies in sanctification and honor but we must continue to engage in battle I was telling someone just this last week listen sometimes we feel that we're engaging in this particular battle And we are attempting to control what feels like uncontrollable urges 
we begin to be tempted to feel that because those urges and desires are welling up within us, they're actually proof that we don't know God or belong to God. Friends, proof that you know God is that you continue to fight, that you continue to struggle and strive, that you do not relent no matter how powerful, that when you fall, you get back up and stand because you know you stand in Christ and you are forgiven. You do not stop struggling. You do not quit fighting. This is how we know we are his. In fact, friends, the day you stop fighting, you ought to be terrified or dead. If you stop fighting and waging war against the flesh, you ought to be terrified because you no longer have any evidence that you really belong to the Lord. Or the Lord has better called you up into heaven and finished your race. Those are the only two options for a Christian to stop waging war with their sin. The third exhortation. We've seen this already. Separate yourselves from sexual immorality. Learn to control your sexual desires and conducts. Third, and this is a biggie. Do not harm others through your sexual conduct. Do not harm others through your sexual conduct. And, and listen to me, church. Sexual immorality always harms others. It always harms others. That is one of the greatest lies of our culture is you can do whatever you want as long as it does not harm anyone else. Friends, hear me. I say this in love and compassion. Every single time sexual acts are performed outside of marriage, it's harmful. Every time. It's one of the biggest lies you can seek and obtain is that you can, you can gain sexual pleasure outside of marriage without harming someone else. You can use another person to gratify your lust without making any real commitment to them, without damaging yourself or to the other person whom you use. That you can give yourself to someone who is not your husband or your wife because, you know, you love them a lot and you're probably going to marry them anyway someday. Listen. Sexual morality always affects others, always. And I know we probably think about the obvious ways that others are harmed from sexual morality. We think of things like STDs or marriages destroyed, families torn asunder, or children being born without the benefit of a stable and secure relationship between their mother and father. Uh, but I'm here to tell you that there is even a more insidious and destructive consequence of sexual sin. Because if you're tempted to think of only those things, then you might be tempted to think that you can get away with watching pornography. I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody even knows about it. But I'm telling you, there is something more insidious and destructive when it comes to sexual sin. It is the defacement of the image of God in yourself and another person. It's the defacement of the image of God in the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. That, that's what... You're doing, listen, brothers and sisters, when you look at images of men or women to satisfy your sexual cravings, you participate and promote the defacement of the image of God. You ignore the fact that the one you're looking at happens to probably be a brother or sister, certainly a son or daughter, maybe even a mother, father, or wife or husband, but they are no less than a child of God. They are in covenant relationship where, with their father, whether that they know they are or not. You ignore all of that and you treat them as an object of your own self-gratification. They become nothing more than an instrument of personal pleasure. May it never be. 
And so I know our society seemingly offers so many harmless, quote-unquote, ways to, to gratify and satisfy your flesh without any apparent consequences. But our passage says there are consequences. There is real harm done to others, and we're called to reject that. To make sure that we do not transgress and wrong our brother in this matter. I remember listening to uh, someone years ago volunteering for Fellowship of Christian Athletes about a real moment he had. He was uh, driving down the highway and he drove by a certain club. Leave that to your imagination. That club had a sign up. The sign said they had a lunch buffet at a really good price. Offering all sorts of enjoyments if he would but stop in for a moment. He was hungry. He needed lunch anyway. But tempted as he was, he imagined in his mind if the real price tag of going into that place was actually up on that billboard. In other words, if it actually said, come on in and lose the trust of your wife. Lose the respect of your kids, the confidence of your brothers and sisters, the assurance of your salvation. All the real cost that comes with a moment of pleasure. Read the fine print, brothers and sisters. Take another look at the price tag. It is not free. So if you're already in it, confess it. Bring it to light. Pray for forgiveness to the Lord. You know you have it in Christ. Seek help and restoration. So there we have our three exhortations. But now we're going to get three reasons why. Paul is going to give us really three powerful reasons why we are to abide by these. To obey these. The first one's found in verse six. Look, at, look with me to that text. It says, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. In other words, the first reason is the future judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. See that. The first reason why we are to abide and obey these exhortations is the future judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word translated avenger actually refers to an affliction or an appropriate penalty from doing wrong. The Greek word comes from the same root word often translated justice or righteousness. And so this word has none of the negative connotations that the word avenge or revenge or vengeance might have in English. So avenger here is actually a positive term referring to one who rightly punishes the wicked for their sins against God and others. And that avenger is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other time Paul uses the word Lord in 1 Thessalonians, he's directly referring to Christ. He is the avenger. The future judgment of God through Jesus is all the reason the Thessalonians should need to walk in a way that pleases the Lord, to avoid sexual morality, to not harm their brother and sister in this, to learn how to control their bodies. Paul reminds them that he had already solidly warned them when he was with them to emphasize their culpability. He said, of which you were forewarned. And the same is true for us, friends. How many times have we been warned? How many times has Paul told us we have been warned. Culpability increases because of that. And I feel like I need to point the fact out that, listen to me, and listen carefully here, because I don't want you to get confused. Paul is using fear here to motivate them. Fear of punishment is, at times, an acceptable motivator. Paul wanted them to be scared straight. Listen, I understand, listen to me, it cannot be the primary motivator. It cannot. 
But for those who are Christians, fear of punishment is still held out in Scripture to the believer as a reason to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is an avenger in all these matters. Remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. He says, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You will find no protection, even in the midst of the people of God, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes as an avenger. If you continue in unrepentant sexual morality, because the kingdom of God does not belong to such as these. So the Lord is an avenger in all such things. So if you think the gospel gives you license to harm your brother and sister, Paul says, be warned. Paul offers here an antidote to the devil's lies here. The devil says, this won't hurt anyone and it'll feel so good. The apostle Paul says, it will hurt more than you know. Following that path will bring you head to head with the Lord who is an avenger against all such wickedness. The second reason, not only do we see the future judgment of Jesus Christ, but I also want to point you out to the past call of God. Past call of God, verse 7 of chapter 4. I'll read in a second. We looked at the future judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're looking at the past call of God. Verse 7 says this, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. God did not call them for the purpose of uncleanness. He called them into a state of holiness. That is their new condition. That is the state in which they are called. So it's not so much just a future goal as it is a past and present reality. They were called by God in holiness. And so we have been called by God in holiness. That is to define who we are as his children. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Uncleanness is incompatible with our new nature. And listen to me, not just individually, but corporately. Uh, don't miss that. Corporately, we cannot overlook or turn a blind eye to sexual immorality in our midst. The reality is, your sexual conduct is not a private matter. That's another lie of the culture, specifically a lie within the church. That's none of your business. Why are we even talking about this? It's none of your business. I beg to differ. Scripture tells me it is. And notice here in the text, Paul actually switches from the you all here to us. He focuses on the corporate aspect of their salvation together, that they are a holy community. And so listen, the way we conduct ourselves, even in the realm of sexuality, has implications for the community as a whole. And hear me, my holiness is your concern. It's not just mine. It's yours. And I feel one of the reasons why we struggle with this issue is because we don't talk about it. We ignore it. And yeah, it's uncomfortable, sure. But it's in the word of God. It's directly given to us as a means by which we are to strive in sanctification and holiness. You know who is talking about it? The culture. You want your children to learn about this from the culture? Or do you want them to learn about it from God's word? It's true. Listen, sex was given as a gift to enjoy God through the avenue of which he's given us of pleasure. It's not a bad thing. It's not. 
Remove the taboo from it. It's not. But it is to be enjoyed within certain boundaries that God gives us. And the boundary he lays out is marriage between a man and a woman. It's crystal clear. So us being afraid to talk about this has actually led to our uncleanness in this area. Third, the final reason, not only the future judgment of Jesus, not only the past call of God, but the third reason we need to obey and abide by these exhortations is the present gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is important. It's all important, but this is, this is crucial. Verse eight. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. See, Paul introduces this conclusion with a rare word used that's translated therefore. It's the first word in verse eight. But really, that word's emphatic. This is really supposed to tie together everything that he has said so far. The reality is that those who reject what Paul has said about separating themselves from sexual morality do not reject Paul, but reject God. It's an infidelity to authority. Likewise, as I stand before you and proclaim these gospel truths, to reject this message is not a rejection of me. You reject the Lord himself. So separating yourself from sexual morality is not optional. It's not simply Paul's opinion he's given here. Learning to control your own body and sanctification and honor is not simply for just the spiritual elite. Not harming our brother and sister is, in this matter is not simply advice for how to make friends and influence others. Sex serves a purpose in God's created order. That's the reality. And church, I get it, we struggle mightily in the flesh, wages war against the spirit. God said it, I experience it, but I know it's true, but I also know that this is true. See, God put his spirit not just in you, that would be the normal construction, but into you. God's spirit now abides in you, dwells in you. And if that's true, then what Brother Corey read from Ezekiel 36 is also true. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is not an imperative, it's an indicative. It's a promise, promise accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, applied to us by the work of his Holy Spirit. See, God gives his spirit. And so Paul calls this community of believers who no longer belong to this world, but belong to a future kingdom that is broken into this present evil age to begin to live like it, to live in light of that promise. And that is who we are, brothers and sisters. You cannot continue to believe the lies of the world. I don't care how strong the urge is, that is not who you are you hear me? So we put to death the deeds of the body. We fight, believe. Paul grounds this entire exhortation in the gospel, and so do we. We strive all the more because we believe his promises are true. We believe that Christ has actually accomplished what he said he would accomplish, and the Holy Spirit actually applies what God has promised. So this becomes more and more the reality of our lives individually and corporately. Here's how I want to close. I want to close with the rest of Derek Webb's Facebook post, his confession. He continued and he said this. This is why temptation is so tempting. 
It's insane how quickly it becomes rational and reasonable to believe and do destructive and evil things. As much as I wish I could, I simply cannot change what I've done, nor the resulting consequences. I can only own these despicable actions which have left me completely devastated and deeply ashamed. Sometimes, no matter how bad you want it or how hard you fight for it, broken things just can't be mended. Sometimes, no matter, um, uh, the only path forward from here is to continue focusing on health and healing, my children and parents, and investing in safe community. That brings me to one of the most important things I can emphasize. Through what has easily been the hardest few years of my life, many friends left, a few stayed, and some new friends showed up, for which I'm so grateful and without whom I might not have survived. For most of my life, and certainly as these events transpired, I have been dramatically under-resourced with people around me with whom I have been truly vulnerable, who really knew me. The importance of having a handful, even just one or two safe people in your life with whom you can and do truly share everything, especially the hardest and most shameful things, cannot be overstated. I see this as one of the most important and life-altering changes that this devastation has brought about in my life. And although it took time, I found a wise therapist, several groups of men with whom I spend regular time and a handful of friends who I consider to be among the best I've ever had. I would plead with you to find a small group of safe men or women, friends who will not respond with platitudes of morality, but will instead get down and not only join, but stay with you in your mess in hopes of helping pull you out. Inevitably, they'll need you to join them in theirs someday. You might be a man or woman reading this even now, finding yourself exactly where I was two years ago, seriously considering choices that could destroy your life, your family, and maybe yourself. If that's you, please listen to me. What you think you want, what you think you can have, is not real. And you'll lose very real things pursuing it. As an unfortunately and extremely reliable source, please believe me. So if you're standing on that steep ledge, stop, don't do it. At very least, risk telling someone immediately and give opportunity to hearing some understanding and perspective, maybe some sanity restoring words that might be the small disruption you need to shake you awake. Tell the whole truth and keep telling it. Your marriage is worth it. Your future is worth it. And friends, this morning I would add, your God is worth it. Would you stand as we pray together? Gracious Father, Lord, you know our great frailty and weakness. You know the temptations that assault us, the lies that we are told day in and day out, many of which we willingly expose ourselves to. Father, would you forgive us where we have become negligent in guarding our own hearts, where we have not separated ourselves from sexual morality, where we have not learned how to control our own bodies in sanctification and honor, where we have, even unbeknownst to us, conscious, unconsciously even wronged our brothers and sisters as we've not been faithful to you nor to them. Father, would you forgive us? Would you restore us and would you help us to remember that your son, the Lord Jesus, is an avenger in all these things? That you have not called us to impurity, but to holiness. 
that you have indeed given us your Holy Spirit and you will cause us to walk in your ways and to follow your statutes. Lord, would it be so here at First Baptist Church of Great Gables in all of your church so that your name might be honored in all the earth. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. As we come to the time of our invitation, I hope it's clear. Um, this, is, this is something I don't wanna pretend like none of us wrestle with. Um, and that's, once again, it's one of the greatest lies of the enemy that you are alone. Look around, brothers and sisters. I know we live in a culture where we put on our Sunday best, or at least most of us do, not your pastor. Um, he puts on our Sunday best and we try to hide every bit of our wickedness. That's not what God gave the church for, friends. You're not here to hide. And, and let me tell you something. I love you. You ain't fooling anybody, okay? You're not. You know why? You know how I know that? Because I have still a very sinful and wicked heart. Your pastor is waging war against the desires of the flesh every single day. Every single day. You know why? Because I was born a sinner in need of a savior. And though I have been wiped clean, though I have been justified by the gift of faith and repentance from God in my life, there is still work to be done. I have not arrived in sanctification and holiness. And I know that I'm not alone. So brothers and sisters, we have to be able to bear one another's burdens. So it's very simple for you this morning. If you are struggling in this particular area, I don't want you to engage in the battle alone. I don't want you to. So just confess it to a brother and sister that you trust. Uh, take the leap, because I know many people would say, I just can't, I can't trust them in that. There's no way, I'm, I'm too deeply ashamed. Friend, I guarantee you, you will find somebody here that you can trust. Come tell us about it. We would love to pray with you, hold you accountable, walk through this together and encourage you. And, and maybe you're here this morning and, and you've not seen how holiness is really the mark of a true Christian. You may have walked down an aisle one day and signed a card, but you've never had any sort of desire to grow in holiness. Friends, if that's the case, if there's no fruit and evidence in your life, you have no reason to believe that you're truly a Christian. It's something that the Lord produces, and yes, it may take some time, but he does produce it. So if you've not felt any desire in your life towards holiness in any way, shape, or form, then I don't believe you have grounds or reason to, to know that you're a Christian. I'd love to talk to you today about how today you can walk out of these doors and know you've been set free by the blood of Christ, that you are a sinner, but God has done something for your sin, so you don't have to pay the penalty that you so richly deserve. Jesus has stepped in and has paid that penalty for you if you would but believe on his finished work on the cross and trust in him for salvation. So if you're here today and you have no desire or mark for holiness, friends, today you can't have that. The Lord will change your heart. I know because he's changed mine. There's a testimony of brothers and sisters here who love the Lord Jesus and whose hearts have been changed and they know it's not because of anything good in them, it's because of the goodness of Christ and our Father. So if you're here this morning and you want to know the Lord, it's very simple. You repent. You turn from your sins. There's no mantra you need to repeat. You just simply need to tell the Lord, Father, I know I'm a sinner. Save me, please. And if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And tell somebody if that's happened. Reach out and say, I don't know exactly what to say. Help me. We'd love to walk that through with you.
Lord, friends, don't leave here today not knowing where you stand with the Lord. I love you, church family, um, and, and I'm so sorry if this was uncomfortable in any way, shape, or form, but know this, and you should have known this by now, uh, I'm a slave to the word of God. We preach line by line through books of the Bible, and so if it's in the text, it's gonna be proclaimed. Uh, I love you, church family. God's word is sufficient. Brother Danny, would you close us in a word of prayer, my friend?